Um, so we discussed the 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 midas abeni, the trade of the baini, and the idea was that even when they experience attachments to klipa from their animal soul, nonetheless the baini does not act on them, does not think, does not speak about them, doesn't think about them, and moves their mind completely away from them to the opposite. Right? And that happens by virtue of being honest with themselves about their intrinsic and inherent love of Hashem. Right? And in doing that, the person is simultaneously going deeper while also making the focus upon their behavior. And that is the trait of the Benini. And that is something that is within reach of every single Jew at any time and at any moment. Being within reach does not necessarily mean it is easy or automatic. That's what we discussed up until now, yes? Mm-hmm. And we discussed about the hidden love and the self-sacrifice and how we're supposed to look at that other Jew, right? Are we rationalizing with ourselves or are we trying to make it more visceral to ourselves? Okay. Now, um, I want to speak about the hidden love and the spirit of folly. And again, I don't want to talk about them at great length because they're not really the topic here. They're developed later on in Tanya. Um, but I do feel that we should address them a little bit more than I addressed previously, because previously we were focusing more about the thought process itself, but I think talking a little about the substance of the innate hidden love that every Jew has and how the spirit of folly covers it over will be helpful to completing this train of thought that we're in. Then we can move on to the next part of the chapter. Good? Does that meet with all of your agreements? Okay. Now, Hasidus understands the idea of self-sacrifice um, or mysterious nefesh as a capacity that is unique to the Jewish person because of their godly soul. Now, this raises a lot of questions. Some of these questions are good questions. Many of these questions are really bad questions. Um, Because I don't want to wade through the minefield of good questions versus bad questions, I want to focus on specifically one aspect of this and make sure that's clear, and then we're going to move on from that to the spirit of folly. Okay? Anything that we develop an appreciation for our appreciation is limited. If you want to think about it, think about it like this. If I gain knowledge of something, the knowledge I have is limited because it is a function of how much I've gone through the process of learning, right? I've learned more, I know more. My learning is of a higher quality, I know it in a deeper way. That makes sense? Mm -hmm. If appreciation, valuing, caring as a product of the knowing of the thing, right? I've come to know it in such a way that therefore I now care about it, value it, etc. Well, if the knowing is limited, then the degree of kind of caring is also going to be limited. That should make intuitive sense, yes? So, can you care about your friends infinitely? Well, why do you care about your friends? What? Because you talk to them, you see them. I mean, I see and talk to a lot of people. I don't care about all that. Right, I see them, talk to them, and through that I get to know them in some way that makes me care about them. And since that knowing about what makes me care about them is limited, the caring is limited. Okay. 
One aspect of limit, one aspect of limitation is the fact that something can be undone, okay? Um, so no matter how strong your appreciation, your value, and your attachment is to something, if that was created through getting to know it, then it can be undone. There can be a breach or breaking point where you don't value it or you don't value it enough and you let go of it, you reject it. That should make intuitive sense as well, yes? So, can a person give up their life for a spiritual purpose, spiritual value? Yes. Is that uniquely a Jewish phenomenon? No. Okay. What is happening psychologically when a person gives up their life for something, something that is spiritual in nature? I'm using the word spiritual because of its vagueness, by the way. It kind of notes being more than the physical, somehow more worthy, and like just leaving that vague. If a person gives up their life for a spiritual purpose, what is happening to them psychologically? How does that work? What is the mechanism by which that takes place? Like self Self-fulfillment. Well, let's take a step back first. They value the spiritual thing more than their continued physical existence, yes? Okay. And their valuing of that spiritual things is because of what they have come to learn and appreciate about that spiritual thing, right? And the way it resonates with them, which we might say that in that a person finds a kind of fulfillment, right? Which is not the same thing as like the fulfillment you get about everyone praising you because you're the smartest person or richest person around. It's not, that actually is not very fulfilling if you think about it. Okay. So, but yeah, in other words, I, by, there's some sense that the person has that, that, that this is... They, that this spiritual thing they've gotten to know such a way that it resonates them with them more deeply, more significantly, more profoundly than their physical existence. Yeah? Okay. That being the case, what they're doing is they're exchanging something of lesser value for something of greater value. That makes sense? That's really what's happening, right? After all, um, if, if that, the valuing of those things would be shifted around, right, the person wouldn't make that choice, right? If the person knew less about the spiritual thing such that they saw less good in it, less value in it, less import in it, right? Or conversely, they saw something about their physical existence that gave it more weight, then the very same person would make the opposite choice. Okay. Clear enough, right? Okay. Now, then there are things that we don't learn to appreciate. And because we don't learn to appreciate them, our appreciation of these things, our value of these things is infinite. Okay. Now, when people hear the word infinite, they start going crazy. They start thinking about like, you know, really, really big and really, really small and a lot and you can do things no matter what. Infinite simply means it doesn't have an end. It doesn't have a boundary. It doesn't have a limit on it. But you have to understand what kind of limit is relevant, right? Um, so if I ask, if I'm doing math and I say, oh, this number is, this, the, the solution to this equation is infinite, right? Does it mean it can also talk? 
No, we mean it infinite in some kind of quantitative sense, right? There isn't a, you, know, you can't say it's less than this number or something, right? So it's always good to think, instead of infinite just being or without limit being just like a, 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 um, something that carries weight on its own, you always want to think about it like the same way thing about like large, right? Large in what sense? In significance, in size, right? So it's the same kind of thing. At what point does a person lose, I'm gonna give this is not to do with the God and God. At what point does a person lose the sense that their life is valuable? At what point does a person sense they lose the sense that their life is valuable? When does that happen? Under what conditions does that occur? What? But no, so that's the then they're not then they're not losing their sense of value. You just said the thing that I'm living for, the thing that gives my life value is under threat, so therefore my life is actually under threat by that thing. And that actually causes a person to distinguish between their mere existence and their life. Right? So classic, right? The person the person um, gives up the, gives up their physical existence, right? They give up their quote life for their children. Okay, but if you think about what's happening, it's not really giving up their life, right? Their children are their life. And their physical existence without their children is right. So at what point does a person so forget what their life is, what it at what point does a person have a sense that my life is just has no value? What does that occur? Or what could cause that to occur? Depression. What? Depression. Okay, so let's use depression as an example. If depression is what causes that to occur, then the then we could cure depression by simply giving their life value. Right? Does that work? Someone feels their life has no value because they're suffering from some depression, right? And you come and say, no, 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 you don't understand. You're really important because X, Y, and Z. Is that how to deal with that issue? Why not? Right, because it's not that they're lacking value. There's something, it's not, it, that's really not the right way of thinking about it. The right way of thinking about it is that they're not able to access that sense that their life has value. There's a very big difference between I don't have the sense that my life has value or something is blocking me from being aware of it. If you want to think about it in terms of like knowledge, there are things that you know. There are things that you don't know. As a general rule, everything you know, you learned. You learned through experience, you learned through reading books, you learned through things I'm told you, right? right? My, my kids sometimes ask them, how do you know? And they say, Ruach HaKadosh, divine inspiration, right? Which basically means that they don't remember learning it. But they learn, learn it. They heard it or their mind developed something else that they heard, right? They don't have to find inspiration. Um, which we then have a play in our house because in Hebrew, um, cottage cheese is called cottage. And so rocha kodesh and rocha cottage sound very similar. And cottage cheese, when it goes bad, doesn't smell very good. So, so, like, so I asked him, is the shirt rocha kodesh? Maybe it's rocha cottage. <laughs> Your mind's like, ooh. Okay. Um, the, so per, the person, the, 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 now there are things that you don't know for a very simple reason. You never learned them. Never encountered them. They were never told to you. You never encountered anything that implies them. And so you have, since you have no interaction between your mind and that aspect of reality, even vicariously through something else, you don't know about it, right? Okay. What about the stuff that you forgot? Is the stuff that forgot going to the category of stuff that you know or stuff that you don't know? You don't know? Okay. If you forgot it, could you remember? But if you remember it, 
how did that work? See what I'm saying? Like, if you ha- remembering is not the same thing as learning it, right? Right? We've all, we've all learned things, right? We've all remembered things. Remembering is a much faster process, right? Something triggers, right? Or you, you like, something do very deeply, and then, boom, it all comes back to you, right? Where's it coming from? You had it already, right? So it turns out that there's two kinds of things you know. The things that you know that you know, and the things that you forgot that you know. And then the things that you just don't know. Now, in experience, the things that you forgot and things you never learned feel very similar, which is that you, have to, you cannot recall that knowledge. You don't have access to that knowledge, right? But because you do know it, you don't need to go learn it again. All you need to do is remember, right? Okay. Now, what does depression do to the person's sense that life, my life has value? Does it remove it from the person? It makes them forget it. Now, how it does that and how to treat that, you'll speak to a psychologist, a psychiatrist, etc. right? But, so, but the treatment is not, okay, the person is lacking something we need to do. Now, there are times that a person is suffering because they're lacking something. Like, for instance, um, a person will be lacking calcium, which makes the bones not um, as strong as they should be. They're lacking calcium, so we, we, we treat that by giving them a supplement, right? something to drink more milk or take a pill that has calcium, whatever, right? But that's not what we're doing with depression. Oh, this person is lacking a sense of value in life. We must give it to them. You don't need to give it to them. You need to figure out a way to deal with whatever is preventing them. Right? And the reason is because a sense that my life has value is innate to human beings. Okay? Now, there is a question of how I see my life, what I see my life to be. Right? The person sees their life as their children their values, whatever else. Okay, that, 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 is, that is malleable threat. But, but a basic sense that my life has worth is something that's innate to a person. We see a lack, of, when we see what a person doesn't feel that, we see that as something diseased in the person. And the way we deal with it is not like a deficiency, like a nutrient deficiency, you, you give them that, but rather to figure out what is causing them to, we'll use those words, forget it. Which again, is more complicated than, than I'm presenting it to be, but because I'm using it as an analogy and I'm not, Psychologist, I don't really care to go into the complexities of it. Is it biological? Is it other things? It doesn't really matter. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, so in that sense, this, a human being's sense that their life is value is infinite. Nothing can happen that can make them lose it. Something that maximum, what can happen is that they can forget it. That they can be unaware about that, but they don't actually lose that, right? Um, if, you want, if you want to think of an example of what would we do, there are some things that um, a person can lose. Okay? For instance, um, Sometimes certain brain injuries can cause a person to actually lose mental function. But not like they become in, incapable of doing it. They're just lost. And so what do they have to do? They have to relearn things. Right? You actually see there's a process of sometimes people relearning things. Like something went wrong and they've totally lost enough to relearn language. That's not the same thing as remembering. It's like something happened. You, know, you had a box with stuff in it. The box got tipped over. Now, things are, now it's empty. And so you have to fill it back up again. Okay. So even something which is innate may not always be manifest 
but that doesn't mean that it's limited because in the sense here, limited means that it is, it has a threshold at which point it can be start to be undone, fall apart, and you lose it. Okay. So there are things that we value because we've learned to appreciate them. And because we learn to appreciate them, we will prefer them over other things. And we will make choices to forgo things of lesser value for things of greater value, right? And then there's like the value we have for our own life where as long as you haven't forgotten the sense of value for your own life, right? as long as you're feeling that, it's impossible for you to ever set your life aside for something else. Which is why if we want people to like die for something, we need for them to in some sense, identify with that thing, in some sense, value that thing. Oh, does that make sense? Okay. So. Like they have to value it as much as they value their own life? Or they really see that as their life. Yeah. You know, it's like how did the Russians get soldiers to fight in, 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 in the army at certain points where things were really, 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 really bad? Is they threatened to harm, not just to execute the soldiers, but to... to the soldiers, because the soldiers knew they were going to die in battle anyway. So if you're going to go, if you're going to get shot, sent off as cannon fodder, why bother, right? Might as well go shot for desertion. But what happens if your family's going to suffer also? Your family's going to get shot for treason. Well then, because you see your life. Yeah. Okay. Now, there are, so there's another thing which is that this question of what you value more and what you value less, okay, itself means there's a limit because it means that I, I recognize that while I'm valuing this other thing, this other thing, the second thing is also good, but if I have to forego it, I will forego it, okay? So for instance, um, would you rather be healthy or eat all the food that you want? What? Okay. Does that mean you? Does that mean you don't want to eat all the food that you want? Or if you could do both, that would also be good. <laughs> what? Right. Right. Then there's ways in which you value something, and your valuing of that thing is so absolute it doesn't allow you to to give you to see any value for anything else. Okay. So, for instance, like when a person feels like their life is in danger, whatever the life is, whether their life, their life is mere physical existence, right, or the safety of their family, whatever it is, right, something that really sees their life, then at that point, if it's truly, truly their life, at that point, in that mode, everything else becomes irrelevant to them. Right? So it's not I prefer this over that, it's that when this is at stake, these other things no longer matter. Does that make sense? Okay, so there's two ways in which I want you to think of this. There's unlimited in the sense that you can never lose it. Maximum is that you can forget it. And unlimited in the sense that once you are in touch with that emotionally, it renders everything else irrelevant. So you're not even doing this, I prefer this over that. Wait, how's the, what's the first one? There's two way, things about not being limited. One thing about not being limited is that it doesn't disappear. It doesn't, you can't lose it. Okay, maximum, you can just be unaware of it. You cannot feel it. The other way in which we can speak about an attachment being unlimited is that when you feel that attachment, you feel that connection, you feel that caring about something, it's not more important than something else. It means that the other things are just not relevant. Okay? 
That makes sense? Okay. Okay. Now. Every human being cares about themselves. Make sense? When we start seeing something as ourself, then it takes on the weight of caring about ourselves. Now, our caring about ourselves is unlimited as human beings, which is do we ever stop caring about ourselves? When we really feel that our very selves are under threat, does anything else matter? No. So if something becomes identified with myself, then it will take on that full weight. Like, say, family. Like, say, a belief system. Like, say, um, some people, it's their money. Does that, that make sense? This will be a little bit easier, actually, if I use the board, because if I make a small little visual, it'll be clear. I don't even have to erase everything. Okay. between me and my life is limited or unlimited? Unlimited. Unlimited, which means, do I ever stop caring about my life? No. If my life is at stake, does anything else matter? Okay, so you say both the sense of being unlimited and fair? Okay, now again, there's the issue of, again, are you aware of that? That's the word. But then there's another question, which is your life being connected to something other than yourself. So say, a value, a family, belief system, your country. Is this connection unlimited? No. no, this connection is built through learning and knowing about something. Right? So if this is under threat, <coughs> right, then what happens? I, 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 I can't take anything else into consideration as long as I'm aware of it. Um, but if someone starts chipping away over here, so let's take an example, right? Can you get a person, let's use an extreme, can you get a person to sell their child into slavery for money? Yes. You can. It's happened in the past. It's not even happened in the past. It's happened contemporaneously. Yes. It occurs. It's not common, but it can occur. Now, what is the thing being, what is the thing being, being, What's the thing being attacked there? Right, the sense that my life is really bound up with this other person. Right? That's what's being, that's what's being attacked, that's what's being challenged. Can you get a person to betray their country? Even if at one point they were very, very loyal. At the point they were a hero who risked their life in battle for their country and then you get them to betray their country, right? What are you doing? You're defending the sense of their own life and their country, compromising their values. You see the same thing? Because, the interme- because that bond between my life and the other thing is something I must grow into, I must learn about, I must come to know, and therefore it can be 
it's limited, it can be undone. It can be lost. It can be broken. It can be something else might come around and, and supplant it. Okay? Does that make sense? There's not a pleasant thing when that occurs, but that, that happens, okay? Oh, because you're saying the child is the other? The child is the other. The child is, yeah. Okay. Okay. Good? Okay. Now. When a person dies for their religious beliefs, what's happening then is that their knowledge of what their religious beliefs are, why those things are, why there's good is true, it resonates more with the sense of this is my life than their physical existence, right? And therefore, right, and maybe if, maybe if it's absolute, they'll just give up their life without even thinking. But that's all based on their knowledge that they've come to grow between their sense of their own life, what their life really is, and that religious belief and their religious conviction, which is how we experience things as Jews also. Okay, that's how it works with a person. Okay. Okay. Now, the soul, Hashem, also the mind. Now the question is, is this bond more now this the bond between me and my life or between my life and other things? Right. In other words, for the godly soul, for the godly soul, it's not that, oh, what I care about is my life and that's unlimited and I have the knowledge to know that my life is found with God. That's, the, that's something that the animal soul can have. That's something that a non-Jew can have. What, this, what the godly soul has is that is that the bond between it and Hashem is like the bond between you and your life. And if it's the bond between you and your life, therefore it's unlimited, meaning it can't be, there's nothing, nothing can come and supplant it, and if that actually becomes something you feel, everything else loses relevance in, its, in, it, in, its, in light of it. And so when we bring the example of the simple Jew, the, or the unworthy Jew, or better, giving up their life not to you know, convert to another religion, the understanding of Hasidus is that what's happening is that that connection is making its presence felt. In other words, it's not that this person is saying, I value my relationship with Hashem so much that I'm willing to die for that. Rather, the part of them, the godly soul, which senses that Hashem, that, that, that attachment to Hashem is unlimited, like the attachment of a person to their own life, that comes out. And in the light of that exerting pressure on their psyche, they're incapable of, of, of taking any other consideration seriously and just they almost feel like something comes over them that they cannot um, comply, regardless of the cost. The cost is irrelevant. And that doesn't depend on the degree to which they have identified their life with Hashem. That's where he brings the example of the unworthy person. And that kind of connection to Hashem is only available with a godly soul. So, can a non-Jew give up their life for something spiritual and true and ethical? Yes. Yes. Right? But that depends on the strength of how they value that other spiritual thing. If they identify so deeply their whole life is, then maybe it can be almost an absolute thing. But at the end of the day, it depends on that coming to know that thing and coming to care about it. Maybe even coming to identify with it. 
Whereas with the godly soul of a Jew, the soul's connection to Hashem is like the person's connection with their very life. Okay? And that's what's unique is because me and my life is still just me, right? Whereas me, my soul and Hashem is, 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 Hashem is not me. So there's a, there's a quality of, this is unique to the godly soul, of being connected to something other than yourself as if it was yourself without needing that intermediary of identify with it. Now, this is something that's true of the godly soul. It's not true of your, of your psyche as a human being. In other words, you have a godly soul and you're a person. The godly soul, the godly soul is present inside the person and the godly soul can be more manifest or less manifest. Like there's stuff that you know, but you've forgotten. There's stuff that you know and you remember. So this part of your godly soul, if it's something that you are not in touch with, your psyche can function as if it's just not true. Your psyche can function as if connection to Hashem is something optional, something I need to learn about, something I need to, to grow into. If, if a person identifies with like, Hashem and Torah, like, all that, like very deeply, could, could their could their also be kind of that? It could, but what Chassidus would say is like this, is the more you make your, as a human being, the more you identify and see Hashem as really the most important thing in your life, you're making, you're making your psyche more of a vessel for the soul's connection to Hashem to manifest there. It's like a student who's focused on topic, engaged with the material, right? Their mind is able to absorb the novel teaching of the teacher much more efficiently than someone whose mind is wandering and has to be entertained and controlled into getting what's going on. So if I devote my human psyche to really being appreciative and attentive of the central significance of Hashem in everything, then my soul will have a much easier time manifesting that unlimited bond, that unlimited love it has with Hashem. Well, like, on the other hand, if I don't, then it may have a harder time doing it. And that's, but th- that bond is not changing because of that. It's just whether the bond is being manifest or not. It's like whether you remember what you know or you forget what you know, but either way, you still deep down know it. Yes? Every Jew. Right, now we're gonna have to talk about why you would choose, like how does the choosing not to work? Not getting in the free will aspect, like what's the mechanism psychologically? So I can choose to do something, but how do I go about doing it? How does a person choose to have the soul manifest or conversely to not have the soul manifest? It's also an interesting question. And what he says here is, is that because the connection of the soul to Hashem is like the connection of a person to their life, so let's go, then, you need something to kind of block that out, hide it. You don't need to really do anything for that connection to be there. Okay, if you're going back, thinking, if you know something, you don't think of a reason why you remember it. It's more accurate to think of a reason why did you forget? Like, what, 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 right? what went wrong that you forgot? What went wrong that you're unaware of it? And he calls that the spirit of folly, in Hebrew called the Ruach Shtus. Okay? And what the Ruach Shtus essentially is, is the capacity for a person to um, not be sensitive to reality. Okay, so I'm going to give you some examples of this idea of Ruach Shtus as it applies to just in regular life and then we'll apply it back to having a godly soul. Um, if a person, I'm going to use the extreme example. 
our sages tell us that, that everybody, everything, everything is always trying to preserve itself. Well, then how can you hurt yourself? If you're always trying to preserve yourself, if you always care about yourself, then how could you hurt yourself? And so the thing is, subjectively speaking, a person who's hurting themselves, either, what? Right, they're either experiencing is that it's not hurting themselves, right? Or they're not experiencing how much they care about themselves, right? In other words, what's happening is that there is a kind of, a, kind of an anesthesia of the mind where you're not aware in, a, in an experiential sense, maybe intellectually you're aware, but that doesn't count for anything, of what, what the reality of you and what you're doing is. Um, and you see this play out in many different things. Like, for instance, when people say, like, I'd rather engage in short-term pleasure and not worry about the long-term costs. Like... That's usually because the long-term cards aren't real to them. They're not, they're not, they're not treating them as, 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 as relevant as the present. But it's not true because if you look at the span of your whole life, the future is just as relevant as the present. Right? And, and to sacrifice you know, the long-term future of the present, nobody looks bad that is okay with that. Nobody feels, right? So there's a way of, of, of being disconnected, right? Um, or you can't really stick your hand, I'll give you an example. You can't get dental work done. You cannot keep your mouth open while having serious dental work done. It's not possible. Have you ever had a root canal? Tooth pulled? A filling? Mm-hmm. Okay. If the dentist is gonna do a root canal or pull a tooth or some series of drilling, not like a title drill, you can't keep your mouth open. It's impossible. What? Because the kind of pain you would experience would cause you to clamp your mouth shut and to thrash around. Which is why before anesthesia was developed, dentists and surgeons had assistants. <laughs> and those assistants, I don't know if you've ever seen old pictures of dentists and surgeons, that assistants, you know those, like, those guys in colleges, like these linebacker guys that like, their arms are bigger than most people's waists? <laughs> So a dentist would have to have a guy like that working with him and some straps and you like literally have to hold the person down. They put the thing that, that, that you wrench and keep the mouth open so you literally physically cannot shut your mouth. Yes. Yeah. An amputation, you literally have to have like straps and people holding the person down because like you can't, like, you can't. We don't have this problem anymore, why? Right, so the drugs are making that subjectively it doesn't feel like it's happening. And as long as it doesn't feel like it's happening, I can do it because to me, I'm not really doing it. Okay? So the spirit of folly is the fact that we have as human beings, unfortunately, the ability to make it as if what we're doing is not really what we're really doing, that what I care about is not what I really care about, what's important is not really important. In other words, to lie to ourselves, not in a way of like we're lying to ourselves ideologically, like this, I believe something I don't believe, but that subjectively, it feels like things are other than what they really are. And the important thing to do is that is a, that is a choice. If it's not a choice, you already need like a therapist. Like if you really can't, we can choose to do that, and the proof we can choose to do that is we can choose to stop. Right? This is called being honest with oneself. Okay? So for instance, okay, can you choose, um, can you make a choice? Use a, like a not a goblet thing. Can you make a choice um, to waste your life? Just waste your time doing nothing meaningful. Mm-hmm. 
No, you can't. You can't. You have to make it that what you're doing subjectively doesn't feel like you're wasting your life on meaninglessness. Now, there's all sorts of ways to do that, right? But if it's very visceral to you that what you're doing is wasting your life, can you continue down that path? Now, can a person have an honest heart-to-heart with himself about that? Like a regular person, they could, and, and people can like... So it's, now if you really can't, you're incapable of realizing that you're wasting your life and having that, appreciate the, the, the emptiness and the wastefulness and it bother, the point that it bothers you and you change. If you're not able to do that, then you probably should see some sort of mental health professional. Now we can choose not to do that. We often do, right? We often make the choice to not really face that. So there's this thing that we have the ability to kind of numb ourselves to the reality of things that allows us to make choices that we're really not subjectively equipped to make. And we have the choice to stop lying to ourselves and face those things honestly for what they really are. So the spirit of folly is not like, it's not a disease that you need to be cured from. It's a capacity that people have that you have to choose to not, you know, fall into. And when you fall into it, to to recognize that and decide not to keep going that direction. Does that make sense? Okay. So, it's, Chassidus says something very interesting. And I'm, after, after I say this, then I'm going to go back to what it says in the Tanya. Okay? And we're going to take all these ideas and put them back together. In Chassidus it says that a non-Jew is incapable of sinning. Non-Jew. A non-Jew. A non-Jew who has no godly soul is incapable of sinning. Nope. Yeah. How's a non-Jew able to sin? What's a sin? Going against what your godly soul is. But they don't have a godly soul. What? Okay, but, but I, I, I don't want the list of the sins. What is a sin? What is a sin? A transgression against what? Against societal yeah. norms? Against, against your parents' expectations? Against what? Against God. Wait, 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 wait. It's a transgression against God, right? That's what it is. Now, if God wants you, if God wills you to do something and you don't do it, that's a transgression against God. That's a sin. Yeah, simple enough. Okay. So a non-Jew is incapable against transgressing God's will. Now, they can eat non-kosher fruit. It's not God's will for them to keep kosher, right? But uh, the non-Jew is incapable of transgressing God's will. God doesn't will them to not kill? He does. What? What? I want you to find me a non-Jew who has a sense that it is the will of God that he should not kill and then goes and kills anyone. Have you ever found a non-Jew like that? No. No. It's not possible. A non-Jew, a non-Jew, if they kill, if they murder, one of two things. Either to them it it feels like there is no God or to them it feels like it's not against his will. But if the non-Jew is not going to fall into the spirit of folly, right? They're going to have this, they're going to clear them that there is a God and this is against his will. Regardless of how much they might like to kill somebody, they will not be able to. So why does a non-Jew sin? A non-Jew sins because they do not have an awareness of one of two things, which is? It's, 
God or that this is against his will. Now, why don't they have that awareness? Well, if they choose to like, block that awareness out, they can't do that? Well, yeah, so is that, that's the spirit of folly. Is, so but what if they never learned? What if no one ever told them there's a God? What? What? No, there's no such thing. What if no one ever told them that it's against God's will? That it's not considered a sin? No. Yeah, and I'll explain to you why. One of the things that Chassidus teaches is that every single creation has an innate sense according to that creation. So if you're talking about a slug, it's how slug sensibilities work. But they have a sense on that level of God and his will as it applies to that. That is innate to every creation. This has nothing to do with Torah and Mitzvah. Torah and Mitzvah has to do with God. These soldiers are above creation. But just like, if God creates something because God is the basis of their existence and his will for them is the source of their existence, so it's kind of built in a kind of instinctive sense of God's will for them. So it is instinctive for human beings to have a sense of God and it's instinctive for human beings to have a sense that, that murder is wrong, that sexual immorality is wrong, the kidnapping is wrong, etc. That, that is, that is, there's nothing has to happen for the non-Jew to learn those things. These are not like cultural knowledge or scientific knowledge or things like that. Um, the same way we, none of us need, need, you know, kind of, we don't need to learn that our lives have value. Right? That's something that's innate. What that value looks like. Okay. So now, if a non-Jew then goes off and transgresses the will of God, something has happened to desensitize them to the innate sense that there's a God or the innate sense that this is against his will. Is that... I mean, I'm asking if you agree, but do you understand the idea? The idea here is that that's an innate... Inst- just like we say, like the, the valuing of yourself is innate. Well, because God is not some external force in the existence of his creations, right? God is the foundation of, of our existence. There is an intrinsic kind of sense, not necessarily an unconscious knowledge, um, and we have a name for this, by the way, that most of us have. Have you ever heard of something called a conscience? Can you go around and kill people and have a conscience? Not kill people because, like, not, kill people wanting them. I'm not getting into issues where there's, there's like, just feel like, yeah, what's wrong with killing them? I wanted their money, so I took their money, and they died, their problem. Can, can you like do that and have a conscience? You know, what is that thing we call a conscience, according to Chassidus? It's the innate sense that every single human being has that there is a God and he has a will. Now, how developed is that philosophically and theologically into a concept of a supreme deity? And da, 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 that's a whole other discussion. I'm not talking about that. The, the Rebbe, in one of his letters, argues... Uh, it's a whole discussion about believing in God after the Holocaust. I don't want to get into the whole letter, but one of the things the Rebbe says is that the people that committed the Holocaust did not believe in God did not believe in God. People who committed the Holocaust did not believe in God. Now, this becomes a whole controversial thing. Like, did they believe in God? Did they not believe in God? What was the ideology? Not the ideology. And, uh, you know, a friend of mine and I were talking about this. It seems that that's not the Rebbe's point. The Rebbe's point is not the ideology. The Rebbe's point is like this. What what, what does it mean to believe in God? On this level. I'm talking about a non-Jew. 
Is it wrong to murder somebody? Is what makes it wrong to murder something beyond you and your personal preferences and your culture and your experiences and your convenience, yes? There's something more absolute about it? Okay, is that just something that you're nodding to because in class it sounds right? Or is that something that on some very primal level you, you get in your gut? Yeah? You're just like, it is wrong to go around murdering people. Okay, yeah? Okay. A person who feels that can they go around and commit the Holocaust? Can, they, can, they, can, they, can you feel that and then go around committing those kinds of acts? Clearly not, right? Okay, so the what, what is that? That is the innate sense that there is something truly higher, truly beyond your individual self that determines what is truly right, what is truly wrong, and you cannot violate that. Okay, now, that is the innate sense of God in every human being, okay? So now, you can go around saying that you believe in God and having, you know, give class in theology and blah, 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 blah. That doesn't mean you believe in God. Conversely, you could theoretically also deny believing in God because you find, like, theology very confusing and, like, the whole mystical stuff makes you uncomfortable with your materialistic understanding of physical reality and blah, 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 blah. And yet, on a very core level, your sense of, like, there is some something fundamental that makes certain things just absolutely really, 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 really wrong, or certain things really need to be done, that, as Chassidus would explain, is coming from the instinctive sense that every human being has that there's a God, and that God has a will, which is, leads us to a very interesting thing in Jewish law. If it, you don't know the law, are you, commi- are you committing a sin? I didn't know that it's forbidden to do X, Y, and Z on Shabbos. Is that an excuse in Jewish law? It is. You didn't know. You didn't know. How are you supposed to know better? So person says, I didn't personally, says, I didn't know that it was wrong to murder. I never learned it. No one ever told me it was wrong to murder. Does Halacha recognize that as a valid excuse? I didn't know it was wrong to commit adultery. I didn't know it was wrong to steal. Those are not considered valid excuses. Shabbos, because Shabbos has nothing to do with your instinctive experience in this world. Like, someone doesn't tell you about Shabbos. How are you supposed to know? The only way a person can grow up and come to the conclusion that there's nothing wrong with murder is if they're choosing to indulge in that spirit of folly to give themselves a kind of anesthesia of the psyche to block out the instinctive sense of God's will that every person has. Now, just one second. When you get into the fine details of things, that obviously you might learn to learn about because you're like, okay, like, you know, I have many conflicting things and then you get into your kind of moral questions and philosophy. But I'm talking about just the basic raw material stuff. Okay? So if a... If it, so, so, Having that innate sense, you can't have that sense and sin. Now, that's not because the person, by the way, feels an intrinsic connection to, to God the way the godly soul does. What that means is that this sense that God is the absolutely, absolute governing force of reality is something that every creation has a sense of on their level. And so if you're a human being, that gives them a sense that there is, there, is a, there, is a, there is a conscience, there's a morality, and that one is going... In some sense, one is held to task and accountable for living up to what is right or wrong or not. That's in, and that, when a person doesn't deny that part of themselves, they can't sin. And obviously, the more they are, they are aware of that, right, the more clarity they'll have about what, they, what they're really capable of doing, also what they're really incapable of doing. And unless a person is mentally disabled or something, they have the choice about do they want to suppress and deny and numb that sense out or do they want to face that 
wholeheartedly, even though it's very uncomfortable to look at your own conscience, right? That's the whole story of Pinocchio, right? He wants to be a real boy, and the thing about being a real boy is that you have to actually accept that you have a conscience, and nobody wants to have a conscience because it means you can't do what you want. So he keeps trying, to, conscience keeps trying to tell him how to live his life, and those of you who know Pinocchio. Um, and that's, that's nothing to do with a godly soul. But that idea of the spirit of father, the Ruch Shtus, is, 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 is a problem that all human beings have. For a Jew, it has the added problem that it affects also our knowledge, our awareness of our own attachment to Hashem through the godly soul as well. And that's what we're going to talk about here. Yes, you want to ask a question. What is yours? Your hands? I don't remember which one. And you waited patiently. Um... They don't always have to be differentiated. For our purposes right now, you could say that the Yitzhar is a better description of the, the, the drive in you to listen, to, 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 um, to listen to the spirit, of, to use your spirit of folly. But the spirit of folly is like an actual... At, like it, 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 it actually blanks, blanks out. You can feel like, you can feel the Yetzirah. The Yetzirah is like telling you, do the thing that's wrong. Do the thing that, you, that shouldn't be done. Don't do what you need to do, right? And you can at the same time not have the spirit of folly. Be very aware, like, that is wrong. I shouldn't listen to that, right? The spirit of folly comes along and adds this other element where it's like, it, it doesn't even feel wrong anymore. The spirit of folly is what makes the Yetzirah not feel like the Yetzirah anymore. Makes the Yetzirah also feel like, like normal. And so, and, that, and the important thing to realize is that's a choice. That's a choice. A cho- in other words, it's not that like, oh, how do I get rid of the spirit of folly? The way you get rid of the spirit of folly is very simple, make a decision. I am not going to lie to myself. Regardless of how uncomfortable the inner truth about things are. Doesn't matter. I'm not going to lie to myself. I'm not going to keep deluding myself. I'm not going to keep spinning a story in my mind to allow myself to not be aware of the reality of these things, okay? Now, in the non-Jew, what does that spirit of folly affect? It affects, when it comes to God, that there isn't a God, or that God actually, God's will. Here, for the godly soul, it's something slightly different, is that... um, because remember, with, the, with, 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 with the non-Jew or with the human being just generally, the issue is that God is, is the dominating force of our reality. That's not the same thing as we're saying with, with the Jew. The Jew, the godly soul's sense is that Hashem is my life. Right? So it's this notion of attachment rather than one of force. I'll give you an example. Can you... Do you have to follow the laws of gravity? What if you don't like them? Right, okay. Do you have to follow the laws of God? Yes. What if you don't like to? Too bad. But the fact that you were able to differentiate the laws of gravity and the laws of God, that is the spirit of, that's the spirit of folly. Because you, 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 they operate in different planes, right? One operates on the physical level, one operates on the moral level, so there is a difference between them. But what it gives you the sense that you can really violate them. Again, what gives a person the sense I can murder somebody for my own financial gain is the sense that it's not really a violation of the will of God. Like, I don't, if I really felt it was a violation of the will of God, I would not be able to violate it. But that's because a sense of how 
pervasive and absolute his influences in creating and governing our reality. So it's based on his power. With the godly soul, it's not based on power, it's based on a sense of attachment. That the godly soul's attachment to Hashem is what? It's analogous to the person's attachment to their own life. Not the thing they identify their life as, their own life. And therefore, you can't, the godly soul can't separate itself from Hashem. It can't, it's not the issue of violating Hashem's will, the issue is, is separation from Hashem. You see there's a difference there? With a person in Hashem, the innate sense is I cannot violate his will. Why? Because his will is what determines my reality. His will, when it comes to the physical world, determines my physical reality. And his will, when it comes to the mental realm, determines my mental reality. And so if he has a will with regard to morality, then my mental reality has this conscience that will not let me go against it as long as I feel that conscience. And if I have gone against it and that conscience reasserts itself, it will, it will continue to eat away at me until I like face my you know, moral failings, right? That, that's how people work. But the whole thing is based on that Hashem's the one who determines our reality, our physical reality, our moral reality, our psychological reality. With the godly soul, it's different. It's the godly soul's sense of Hashem is not some other being, but that Hashem is my life. And so the, for, the, for the godly soul, detachment from Hashem is impossible. So how can the godly soul do anything that would detach itself from Hashem? it either must not realize that it's the being detached or it must not realize that Hashem is my life. In other words, the thing that it must be, the spirit of folly is making the person numb to is something slightly different. It's, so, it's something not about Hashem's power over our reality, which we call our conscience, but rather the t- kind of attachment that the godly soul has. And again, because the spirit of folly is a choice, if the person decides not to lie to themselves, what will happen? That sense of, 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 of attachment that cannot be broken will be something that enters the psyche of the person. They'll have a sense of it, and they will feel the need to make decisions in accordance with that. So when we say that, it not, when we say that only a Jew can really have a serious nefesh, we're talking about a, a kind of qualitative thing. The sense that I cannot be separated from Hashem. Like the way a person can't be separated from their own life. And because of that, no considerations are relevant. And it doesn't depend on what I know about Hashem, what I've learned about Hashem. All it depends on is that I don't lie to myself. With a non-Jew, they have to, they have to um, either, it's, either it's the sense that Hashem is dominating over them, Hashem has given them this powerful sense of His will that they feel like they can't escape, like I said, like this, this, this conscience that eats away at them if they don't listen to it. Or conversely, there's a sense that I value this thing so much, I'm willing to sacrifice one thing to preserve the other thing. But that sense that I am attached to him in a way that can't be broken, that is unique to a Jew. And that's the thing that we call the innate love. And that's the thing that the person has to be honest with himself about. And being dishonest with yourself is called the spirit of folly. Being dishonest means you either don't feel that that attachment is real, or you don't feel that that attachment is being threatened. So if you look inside the text, just so you... um, on the right-hand column, the end of the, the right in the middle of the page, the last word in line is it. 
It is only that a spirit of folly has overcome him, and he imagines that committing a sin will not affect his Jewishness, meaning his connection to Hashem, and his soul will not be severed by, thereby from the God of Israel, forgetting also about his love of Hashem, which is hidden in his heart. So it does two things. It either makes us forget, makes us not realize that the sin is really separating us, or how deeply attached we are to him. But if you feel the attachment, and it is in, if you're not going to lie to yourself that we, you're attached, and you're not going to lie to yourself that this doesn't really separate, then you can't sin. And then that can't sin is different than the non-Jew can't sin. The non-Jew can't sin because there's this powerful force of conscience that won't let him sin. With the Jew, it's something different. It's my life is him, so I can't go against him. It's a, it's a very different kind of feel. With the Jew, it's a much more intimate thing. So, so and... That's what the altar wants a person to become in touch with and anchor themselves when they're dealing with all sorts of feelings of attachment to negative things, to unholy things, is to anchor themselves in the sense of that kind of thing. Not that I can't go against the will of Hashem because he's God. I can't separate my Hashem because of what I am. I am, I, deep, deep down, I'm a soul and that, that soul's attachment to Hashem is like a person's attachment to their own life. And a sin is a separation from that. So it's got nothing to do with obedience. It's got nothing to do with, with deferring to Hashem. It's a very different feel. When a person, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel like you're, you're it, doesn't, it doesn't really feel like you're, you're, you're obeying something greater than yourself. What it actually feels like is you're obeying yourself. yourself. You're, you're being, you're, you're, because it's, not, it's being honest, not about your sense of Hashem, which is like how it works with a non-Jew. It's that you're being honest with a sense of your own soul. Okay. Um, and what that means is, that leads to another important thing, which is not really developed here. Conscience has its limits. In the sense that When does our conscience kick in? It usually kicks in when we have a choice between doing something wrong versus not doing something wrong. Does conscience really pick in, kick in when it's about throwing yourself into above and beyond what is really required? That same kind of like conscience. You, then you need to start, like, why do I value this? Why is this important? Giving you the example, like, like you're faced with a situation of like somebody, you're faced with a situation where you walk down the street and someone is being attacked and their life is clearly in danger. And it's very inconvenient for you to get involved, to call the police, da da da. And so it'd just be easier for you to just walk on, right? Will your conscience let you do that? No. If you listen, it won't let you do it, right? But does your conscience really t- tell you that you really should go become a firefighter? No. Like that thing to devote yourself totally to something. Because again, conscience has this kind of obedience to higher authority kind of dynamic to it. Whereas with the godly soul, that's not what it is. It's, this is my life. Well, if this is my life, I can never have enough of it. And so for the Jew, this type of dynamic doesn't just prevent them from sinning in the kind of, I can't violate the will of God. I can't not meet my obligations. But actually, as we said in the earlier class, it has that element of doing good, of pursuing. So you can even use this to motivate yourself to devote yourself to mitzvahs 
far deeper and beyond what halacha even requires, the same technique would work. That if I'm going to be honest with myself that Hashem is my life, then I can never have enough Judaism. Even, I can never say, ah, good enough. Whereas with conscience, you can do enough good to assuage your conscience because the conscience is working off of this sense that God has a will, His will governs your reality, so you must be in compliance. But once you're in compliance, that force is, say, is satisfied. So in that sense, there's a very big difference between the two, but the way in which they're similar is what allows a person to go act against conscience is the spirit of folly, which is a choice, right? And the choice to not have the spirit of folly is just a choice to be honest with oneself. And then that same dynamic is also true with the godly soul. One caveat to everything I said is that if you are, in addition to everything else, you have um, worked really hard to develop some sort of coherent ideology about why you shouldn't listen to your conscience Mm -hmm. or why you shouldn't listen to your godly soul, you're not making this impossible. You're just making it a lot more difficult. Because it's, you don't just have to get past, it's like, it's like, there's a really good lawyer defending the spirit of folly, which, which, um, and that's why, for instance, if somebody grows up in a society, right, where the society educates people with a whole ideology of acting in unconscionable ways, right, it requires a much greater force of honesty on behalf of the person to break free of that. People do, right? People can feel that it's wrong, but because there's so much social pressure and so much intellectual reinforcement of the spirit of folly, you really have to make a, a, a choice to really, really be honest with yourself. And that's similarly also with the Jew. If a person adopts a kind of a narrative of themselves that they don't have a godly soul, that spirituality isn't real, blah, 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 all these types of things, it's going to be much harder for them to be honest with themselves about the attachment that their godly soul has. Not impossible, just very, very hard. Um, there's some in, there's some interesting there's some interesting videos about like really militant secular Israelis discussing things with rabbis, not arguments like friendly. What's the word I'm looking for? Like you know when you have like an intellectual discussion, you disagree, but you're really trying to like not win points. Like there's you know those kind of discussions. So there's interesting discussions. And like you can sometimes see like they, like they sometimes the person will walk themselves into a corner where like the logical step of their position is like to is like, I'll give you an example. There's a little video like just not a, just a, a um, like a very a, a rabbi is very warm and charismatic and everything else. Um, having intellectual discussion with someone who's like a very strong atheist. That's a very friendly conversation. Um, and at one point. Um, and it wasn't, it's not like one of these get you, I got you kind of thing. You can make the kind of, they're having this discussion. And at one point, the, this, the, the person who's, you know, Jew who says to be an atheist, um, says, well, says, responds to something else, so of course I gave my children a bris. I gave, as he mentioned, he gave his children a bris. Now there was an of course. And he says, why did you give them a bris? He says, well, I mean, I'm a Jew after all. So he says, okay, well, what does that mean? He says, well, we have a, have a heritage. Okay, and what, what, what do you mean by that? you have a heritage? And you can see, like, the, like, like, he realizes, like, there's this thing inside him that, like, if he were to be honest with himself, would put him in one direction. He doesn't want to go in that direction. But, like, 
continue, but but he's honest enough not to come up with like some sort of like lie about like some sort of thing. Like he realizes like, like on some level, like there's something deep and profound that I kept my finger under that I'm a Jew and my children need a bris. They really just need a bris. But the explanation that's most sound to that is to abandon the, all the ideology. He doesn't want to go there, but he also has enough like you know decency not to just make something up. So he just kind of smiles. Let's let's move on. <laughs> And that you see coming out. But the thing is, that's happening regardless of how much a person's aware of it or not. And so the thing is, you, you, can choose to be, you can choose to be more honest with yourself, not choose less honest with yourself. Okay? Um, that's the idea here, is that this innate love is not I have this deep, thirsting passion for spirituality with Hashem, but the best analogy for this is like the conscience of just a non-Jew. But even there, it's not a great analogy. Why? Because a conscience has the sense of being kind of something that you feel like is something is imposing on you. Whereas it's more like your life. So it's, it has that kind of demand, like your conscience, but it's not just with coming with expectation. It's coming with like, this is, this is, this is everything I am, like my life. And it's about being connected. That, that not I need to achieve connection. I am connected. I can't separate myself. Okay. And the spirit of folly, it doesn't make a person not believe that that's true or not understand it, all it makes it just doesn't feel real. So that they can plausibly deny it, like you know the anesthesia that you can keep your mouth open while the dentist pulls your teeth out or whatever. Okay. Good? Okay, so tomorrow we're gonna move on and talk about what the Bainini can't really do, which is the, the, um, the, the unique kind of service of Hashem that's available to a tzaddik that's not really given over to a Bainini. We were contrasting how Baini is relevant for everybody, where the tzaddik may not be relevant for everybody. But, so don't understand, when you know what really is the tzaddik doing in their service of Hashem. What, what characterizes that that's different than what characterizes the Baini? Good? Questions? Comments? I have an unrelated question. An unrelated question. That's no, you cannot, have, you cannot have my chocolate chip cookie recipe secret. <laughs> um, it's about time. I was learning with someone and she had a hard time understanding how, how like what's the greatness of a tzaddik. Like, so he got rid of his yetzer, his mm-hmm. and now all of a sudden like, like why are we praising him? What's, what, what's, why is he the highest level? Like the Bainini should be the person who is the highest level seemingly. Like he's not working hard. Who says not working hard? So that's so then what's the hard work? Like what's harder than fighting against something that's I have two ways I can answer this. One I could say is she's onto something and just fight. But I think there's something very, very wrong in the question okay. that like is detrimental to service of Hashem. Which is that we often turn service of Hashem into something artificial. And when artificial things you value things differently. I'll give you explain to you what I mean. I think all of us would say that if you were to read a novel or watch a movie or anything like that, right? The part of it, if you had to be in that and you were one of the main, you were, you were a character in that, which part would you rather be in? The first act or the middle act or the final act? Final. The final act. The final act, meaning after the conflict, after the problem, you'd rather be in the state where you've undergone a problem, your life has been upended, Everything is miserable, and now things have been resolved. Or you'd like to be in the situation where things are like pretty normal and stable before the problem happened. Which one would you prefer? 
No one wants to be in the problem, right? So the first act is the setup, the last act is the resolution, the middle act is the problem. Where would you like to live? Where would you like to life to look, look, look like? In real life, you look at people, they want the first act. The first act? Yes. In real life, people want, how do people want their life to look? Things are going well. That's it. Everything's just going well. Baruch Hashem, I applied for my job, I got the job. Baruch Hashem, my kids are healthy. Baruch Hashem. You know, just like, that, like, think about it. How would you like your, you want your life to look like there was this big issue and through some sort of like very dramatic, very interesting thing occurred and Baruch Hashem and all got resolved or just like life was smooth from the outset. Which one would you prefer if you're actually living the life? But because the movie is artificial, which one is more compelling and interesting is a result of the conflict. You see what I'm saying? Like there's a way of like making it, artif- when your, things are artificial, it distorts your sense of what it really is. What is, a, what is a Russia? What is a Russia? A Russia is a person who does things that are destructive to the relationship to Hashem. Good? So what's a Russia in human relationship terms? Someone who does something that are destructive to their relationships. Now let's use an example. So we'll, example of marriage. Okay. Husband and wife, they're married. And let's give an example. So what would it mean that the husband and wife are a Russia? Not an extreme example. That when they're stressed, they make nasty comments to their spouse. Yeah, people do that. They're not bad people, but you can really mess up a relationship that way. I mean, first off, the relationship is not, right? Yeah. People get stressed and they start making nasty comments to each other. That's the way they deal with their stress. They take it out on the spouse with nastiness. Okay. Yeah? Okay. Now, then there's a person was a baini. What's a baini? A baini said is that they never do anything damaging to the relationship with Hashem because regardless of how they feel, they're always to get in touch with something, this deeper thing, right? So what would the baini be in a marriage? They never say anything nasty to their spouse. Why? Because they value their relationship. They value their relationship. But when they get stressed, right? And then their spouse does something slightly inconvenient or they didn't even not, Right? Right? They have to go through this process of holding their tongue and recalling what's important because if they were to just go out, allow themselves to just go off on pure instinct, right? The most vicious things would come out of their mouth, right? Okay. And then you have a person who's a tzaddik. A tzaddik is a person who doesn't want anything other than being close to Hashem, right? Okay. So would that be in a marriage? Like not even wanting to make nasty comments. That's right. Now, I want to ask you, if you are an actual party in a marriage... You won't prefer to be which person? The person who, yes, I have these deep desires to say nasty things. I, I have these sometimes these desires and to say nasty things to my spouse and these really vicious thoughts pop through my head. But I know that it's detrimental to marriage and it's important, so I don't do it. You'd rather be that person. You'd rather be the person that even when you're stressed, the care you have for your spouse wouldn't even get you to the point of even it occurring to you to say something nasty to them. Which one would you rather be? The, the second one. Okay. And if you know that someone is that, would you, wait, wow. I really admire that person. I really look up to that person, right? So the minute we take it out of like it being the artificial in the game and getting points into like a real life thing, it should be pretty intuitive that being a tzaddik is a wonderful thing. Now, then let's, that's step, and I think it's very, very important. Always ask yourself, what are we actually talking about at, from the inside as it's as it, a lived by a person rather than looking at the outside as like a game you play and seeing which level's higher. Then the second thing is like this. Let's say you are the person who it just never occurs to you to say anything nasty to your spouse. Your relationship doesn't work. 
You get along wonderfully. You would never say anything nasty to your spouse. See, the relationship requires no work. It does require work. Probably healthier work, right? In fact, you can probably, that work you can get to deeper and deeper places. Like, right? And presumably, if you decide to just treat the relationship as just a casual thing that requires no investment on your part, that itself is a way of undermining the whole thing, right? So presumably, Tzadik would not going around, well, I've achieved love and fear of God. Nothing else for me to do the rest of my existence. Don't seem to see Tzadik in living life that way, do we? So there's like a way in which like, We've, we've created a myth around the significance of struggle that doesn't just, I mean, it's nice for the movies and it's nice for a novel, it's nice for a Greek mythology, but nobody wants to live their life that way. No one wants that to be the defining thing of their life. And that's why the altar has to keep coming back and comforting the Bainani. Right? It's not like, it's not like, oh, struggle's so amazing. It's like, what's someone else struggle? Struggle's not so amazing if you're the one in the struggle. If the struggle's affecting your relationships. And you have to come and understand there's something they've accomplished and we're going to achieve to see it in a positive light. Fine. But like, it's not, it shouldn't be that it's intuitively greater. Like if it is, it's because the person's treating the whole thing as very artificial. Because if you think about the person who doesn't say something nasty to their spouse because they wanted to and then they held themselves back, that's, that's objectively greater than someone who didn't even want, as in... What, in what sense is it greater? In, in what sense they, is it greater? In the fact that they, they really wanted to but like didn't... Why is that greater? Because it's harder? Not necessarily. It's not even necessarily... It's not necessarily harder. It could be that the other person is working harder. It's just... It never occurred to them to say something nasty to their spouse because they're, because they're a much more decent person. Like, why? It's not necessarily harder. Like, in real life, it's just not true. Like... By that logic, actually, we should all cut off our legs to make our lives more difficult. Then we can all be heroic. <laughs> nobody was like, nobody's like, oh, I saw this movie, The Person Who Lost Her Legs. It was so amazing. I felt so connected. I'm going to cut off my legs. So I can, like, nobody does that. It's just not true. Like, yes, you can see there is something to that. There is an aspect to that. I'm not saying that there's, there's, there, that isn't there, but, but that's a comfort. That's a, that's seeing a uniquely positive thing. But the, if you're treating something as real life, like, nobody's like, you know what? I really want things to be really hard for my children, for, like, their life to collapse around them so they really build themselves from deeper within. Like, nobody wants that for their children. But then the kid who went through that... That's fine, the kid who went through that. But the parents whose kid went through that, and the kid who went through that, while they can come to accept it and vow it and cherish it, they still wanted it for their kid. Right, but if you take a step back and you say, which kid really, really is, te- is technically speaking greater... Why are you judging your children? There's something this child has that the child doesn't have. It's true. There's something this child has that that child doesn't have. It's also true. And by the way, the child who 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 everything works out smoothly, he could also set his task to something that is so far beyond his instinctive capabilities that he has to go through that process anyway, even without the total collapse of his life. Sadiqim often work infinitely harder than we do. It's just, it's just not true. People, people who, are, or who are warm, decent human beings often push themselves in much deeper, deeper more, more ways than the person who's struggling with a bad habit. It's just not necessarily the case. And, and, and it's not the, like, the main parameter of which we value things in life either. It only happens because we're treating it like a kind of mythology. We're treating it like a kind of, of entertainment. It's like something that we... We look at from the side like, wow, that's more dramatic. But like, 
make shekel doesn't make something greater. No. Why should it make something greater? Like, like that. that. doesn't say that either, by the way. Struggle. There, there are things that make things greater. The more you push yourself into something because that you, you have to invest yourself into it. Fine. But the struggle, you can push yourself into something. You're pushing yourself into something because you, like something could be going wonderful and smoothly, and you, but you want to have even more. You want to have even more. There's, it's not... There's a thing in ancient Greek mythology about valuing struggle. Like it, it shows up in literature. It shows up in movies. But like... Nobody's life is... Like that's not what we want from life for ourselves, for our children, for the people we care about. And that's not what a person should want in the relationship with Hashem. When it occurs, we should be able to see the depth in it. We should be able to see it in a positive light. We should be able to put it into a good context, which Tanya does. But like, if you start making like that, it's like you turned it into a sport. So the greatness of it is not the struggle, but... Like how hard you push yourself into it? The greatness of everything in Chassidus is the closeness to Hashem. There's a unique kind of closeness that can be achieved through struggle. There's a unique kind of closeness that can be achieved through returning to Hashem after sinning. And, it's, and, and, and if it's achieved, it's a wonderful and a beautiful thing. But you know what? You're encouraged. I'd ra- not encouraged. <laughs> the, person, the person who has that closeness would prefer to have never had that closeness. That, 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 that's one of the things. Like The, like the person who's the person who's grown from tragedy would prefer never to have had the tragedy. That's part of the... It's not like, like, oh, well, I'm so happy I went through this tragedy. <laughs> no, like, yes, you can have that grow, but, but it's not like... And that's why you don't see, well, I went through tragedy, I want to impose it on everyone else now. That's not usually what happens, right? The person who grew through tragedy becomes more determined that other people shouldn't have those tragedies. Like, it, it, this comes from treating it as, like I said, this... this as a non-real thing, where the drama of it becomes the main point. And, and I'm not saying, again, str- not saying struggle doesn't correlate with anything valuable and beautiful and meaningful, but like that's not like... I think this is like really critical to turning things into, in, into being able to implement them in real life is not falling into that mistake. When I encounter struggle, I should be able to see it positive light. I should be able to see its unique opportunity, its unique beauty. But I shouldn't turn my religious life into some sort of like you know Hollywood plot or Greek or Greek drama or you know anything like that. So it's more about that they're on different tracks mm-hmm. about like pushing themselves further in, into into relationship with Hashem. Right, and they're pushing themselves in different ways. Right. And there's advantage in this, there's advantage in that way. There's something here, there's something there. Nobody's, nobody's just, you know, sitting on the beach drinking pina coladas all day. That's not happening. It is technically true that if the Benini, if the Tzaddik didn't put any real effort in his relationship with Hashem, he wouldn't fall into anything unholy because he's not particularly interested in it. But like, so what? Like, I'm, I'll give you an example. This is like a very like low, it's not even a relationship example. I'm not particularly partial to eating dirt just doesn't speak to me. Like, it doesn't really require any effort on my part not to eat dirt. I still put an effort that the food should be more to my taste than just, uh, well, it's not dirt, it's good enough. No, I actually want it to be like this and not like that and I get kind of picky right now. Some people are like, yeah, it's good enough, it's not dirt, it's good enough, it's edible. <laughs> but, 
Tzaddikim aren't usually, well, it's not clear, but good enough for me. They're like, no, I want more. I want it deeper. I want it richer. Just... And, right, just because there's nothing like meaningful about it, doesn't mean that you're not pushing yourself. Right. In other ways. Right. It's like, well, this couple's, not, this couple's not in therapy. Clearly, they're not working on the relationship. I don't know. Maybe they're just like mature, decent human beings that deeply love each other. And so they don't have like serious problems. And the, the, where they're pushing themselves is in a deeper way that most people don't even appreciate that human beings can connect on that level. Right? Mm-hmm. And the pushing is not the point. The, pu- the, the issue is the closeness and the connection. Right? That's the issue. Whenever the Alter wants to show you the value of something in, in, in Chassidus, it's always how there's that brings it back to a connection to Hashem. Yes, there is something about the Bainese connection to Hashem which has a depth and a beauty and in some sense even the Tzaddik should try and incorporate that into their Aveda and that's true and yes, it's all wonderful but you know what? Tzaddik can do that and they try to do that. The, the Alter Rebbe once told them the, the, the Tzamech Tzaddik that he wants to give him all the Torah as a gift. So all the Torah that I know, I'm going to give you as a gift. Al-Tabit said, it's a grandson. And Semach Sadiq said, no, because he wants that the Torah should be his, that he worked for the Torah, he learned the Torah. It's, it's, it's not just something that's showered upon him, it's something that really it's his, he's learned. In the end, he regretted his decision. You know why? Torah is infinite. Could have started where the Altar ever left off. And that's how we are in life, right? If you've achieved X, you don't want your kids to start from zero. You want your kids to start with you. Now, sometimes you can do that, like with certain degrees, certain things, like say something like finances or maybe, or maybe lifestyle, knowledge of Judaism in terms of kind of the culturation, things like that. But there's certain things that you just can't, but you wish you could. Like parents just wish their children could start off on their level of maturity and life experience. Like you have, it's like, I have a teenage son. It's like, why can't you just know what I've learned in my 30 plus years of life? Why can't you just know that already? And he can't, because he's got to go to work. But like, I wish he could, and on some level he couldn't, right? And he was smart, he would take it, right? Why? Because like, like, that's it, you're done, you're done growing at that point? No, there's a... <laughs> so like, they do still have free choice at that. Of course they have free choice. Like, it's not like... Of course they have free choice. It's like when people are start first starting to learn and they, they don't know, know how to translate, they think learning is, the, the real hard part of learning is translating Hebrew. But like if you can translate Hebrew, you realize that that's not hard, that's not the hard part at all. That's not even really, like, often when a person is struggling with one thing, they imagine that anyone who doesn't have this struggle is just, you know, which is not true. When it doesn't have something to deal with, that's my idea thing, right? It's like, you don't, you don't really know what it is to really have an issue in life because you don't have my issue. Mm-hmm. What about the person who feels so close to Hashem um, that it's hard for them to relate to other people even though they know Hashem really wants them to relate to other people? You ever consider that? That's a struggle. You know the Baal Shem Tov had a very hard time as a child being around people who weren't children? He had a hard time being around adults. He couldn't be around adults. It, it made him, I don't know, physically sick, but it was just like he could not handle being around adults. The Baal Shem Tov would go around and help the, collect the children for Cheder and then spend his time in the woods. Like he could not be around adults. The degree of cynicism and, and dishonesty and, and just all those negative characters that start to develop in other people, he just feel it. And it just 
he could not be around them. And the Baal Shem Tov was the became there's known you know the person who like made, made everyone feel warm and comfortable and being close to everybody and there was a whole process I don't know but that was other I didn't go through it but like if you read what the description of the Baal Shem Tov is a child you read the description of the Baal Shem Tov where's the Baal Shem Tov it's like from like today there's a person who's so sensitive to the to the to the the the, the, the materialistic self absorption of human beings that he literally cannot be in civilized society. He like has to be out in the woods if he's not dealing with children. Like it, it's like oppressive. Becomes the person who has room at his table for the worst sinners. So okay, so he doesn't have a yitzhara, but like I don't know, this is, sounds like something's going on there, right? There's letters, by the way. You can read letters that Sadiq and write to each other. They're very deep. They're very intense sometimes. And the things that they're working on. Things that they're working on. Things that they're struggling. There's a letter. There's a letter of the Alter Rebbe to the Magad of Mizrich. But the Magad of Mizrich sent the Alter Rebbe to go do something. For whatever reason. I don't know what it is. And said, you can't come back to see me for whatever reason. It's not clear from the... But all we, that's, from the that's the context of the letter. And the Alter Rebbe basically writes that like, he, he feels like his life has no point to it. That he's just... The, the sense of being separate from the Magad has like... He, 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 the, 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 the longing is eating away at him. He doesn't know if he can continue. And it's like... <laughs> It's like, okay, he doesn't have a Sahara, but like this sense of love he has for his Rebbe is so overwhelming him that he, 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 he feels like he can't do what he needs to do. I don't know. It's not my problems in life, but like, everyone has the, 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 the way their life develops when their life comes out. And again, it's not the struggle, it's the, the quality of connection that's really what it's about. Struggle is often a way in which we achieve something more deeper and richer and profound. Struggle as like a something to celebrate in itself. It's like a little bit idolatrous. Idolatrous. <laughs> you could worse. Where do you find, you, you could find letters between the Magad and the Alter There is a, something called Hatamim. Hatamim is a magazine that was put out um, in the 1930s in Europe. Like, it came out, like, I think three times a year, four times a year, um, to keep, like, all the different chassidim together. So it has a section, the different sections. Um, um, so a lot of the stories that we have of the early generations of chassidim were written by the previous rabbi and published there anonymously. There's a section on, like, you could write in your questions on chassidus and the editorial board would answer them. Very interesting things. There was, like, people would publish um, novel insights into Gemara or chassidus. So one of the things was they would print... From, from the Chasson archive, um, letters from, from the Baal Shem Tov and the Magid and their contemporaries. What archive? The archive from the city of Kherson. In the city of Kherson, there was an archive that was discovered um, of letters, copies, not the originals, copies of letters from the Baal Shem Tov, the Magid, and their disciples. There's some very fascinating, fascinating letters. What? It's called Hatamim. It's not Kherson. It's in it's the town in southern Ukraine, which is now currently being occupied by Russia. Um, it's Kherson. Called Kherson. Um, but the this was very very interesting. 
um, you can see that there's differences. There's sometimes very bitter disputes between the tzaddik about things, and you can see like they're people. That, but but you know, I really want to eat food, and I'm not getting the food I want. I really want money, or people aren't like treating me as important. Like like that's not the issue. There's always it's always around these deeper issues of connection. Okay, so you're not like, but you're living a life. So why is that life not a better life? Face it, it's a much better life. Probably also a harder life too. Because you focused on more like nuanced things. Yeah, you're focusing on things that are that are that are that are realer and richer and it's like whose life is more of a life? Someone who's single or someone who's married with children? Someone who's married with children. Their life is just their life is more. So who's not someone whose life is about paying bills and, 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 and making sure that like people in the community treat them properly, you know, and they can take a vacation, or people whose life is about the quality of their connection to Hashem and every other Jew. Like, who's been living a richer life? Whose life is more would you rather live? Okay, then I'm going to say, you're not living that life. You have to see the positive in your thing. You have to appreciate that, and it's all true. But, like, don't, like, like don't flip the things around to the point that you don't even, like, because that, that, that distorts something. And, you know, seeing the positive light doesn't mean you should lose your sense of, of, of proportion about things. This whole thing, the Baal Shem Tov didn't want to reveal himself as the Baal Shem Tov. And his mentor, the Radim Baal Shem, um, kept trying to like persuade him and the Baal Shem Tov kept avoiding him. There's letters about the Baal Shem Tov, like, why are you avoiding me? Like, because you know that I'll be able to show you that this is what you really need to do and you don't want to do it. And like, like there's real like issues. Like, Wait, between the Radim? Radim Baal Shem, the mentor of the Baal Shem Tov yeah. and the Baal Shem Tov. Yeah. 